Thank you. Well, good morning. Like Paul said, my name is Chris Ginshear. I am a pastor in the PCA, and uh, my life has looked very different for the last few years. See, we moved to Texas in 2014 to plant a church in the area, and we led the church down in Mansfield for about four years. And uh, since then, at the end of 2018, we sensed God moving in very different ways. Uh, we, uh, some of you know because you were there, some of you don't know, so I'm telling you a little bit of my story. Uh, we sensed that God was actually leading us to close the church down. And that is a very hard thing to do. It was not easy for us who had kind of given our lives to this work, but it had just become clear that God was moving us and our people in a totally different season. And at that time, I knew two things. Um, We weren't supposed to go directly into another pulpit ministry, and we weren't supposed to leave Texas. So what do you do when you're a preacher in Texas? Uh, I, thankfully, I had some other skills from my life before I was a pastor, so I started doing some marketing consulting, and God opened up some tremendous opportunities to meet with people in the business community that were opening up to me in ways that I never expected and imagined. Uh, it's one thing when you meet with a pastor. You, you kind of feel like you have to uh, present yourself a certain way, right? Um, when you're just another businessman helping them with their marketing, they actually tell you the things that are closest to their heart, <laughs> Right, so uh, over the years, I've uh, I've had some great friendships and some great opportunities to minister the gospel in our business community. One of those guys has become a friend of mine, and I was having lunch with him recently. Now, this is a man I won't tell you his name, uh, but he's a very successful man in the community. And he and I got to know each other. We we had just a, a kinship and a friendship. We liked each other. He would have said he was a Christian. I was seeing maybe. I don't know if that's really the case, right? Uh, there's just some things that, you know, he was way too comfortable with that, that I thought, I don't know that if you really are endeavoring to live your life for Jesus, you would be as comfortable with these things as, as you are. Well, when we had lunch recently, I noticed that something was very different about him. The way he, he carried himself, the way he talked, everything about him was just different. And I asked him, you know, what's going on? Tell me, how have you been these last few months since we last hung out? And and he said, Chris, I got to tell you, like, my life has just completely changed and turned around. He wouldn't have called it a conversion experience, and maybe I don't know that I would call it that either after hearing the story. He just recognized he got way too comfortable in some areas in his life. He, He was very successful, so he knew his way around numbers. He knew his way how to make money for his clients and for himself, and He had kind of grown to a place where he could insulate himself, and he thought he knew better than anybody else. He wouldn't take correction from anybody, people he liked or trusted, not even his own wife and family. And he started to notice the effect that was having on his relationship with the people he cared about. And he just got to a point where he recognized, the way I'm living my life isn't just affecting me. It's having a consequence on the people who love me, who have kind of hitched their wagon to my life. The, the people I love and have given myself to now don't really want to be near me or with me because of the way that I just live my life the way that I please. As he was talking and sharing, I recognized some things in my own life that I could recognize in his. There are ways that I've grown too comfortable in some of my relationships. It's easy to take for granted the people you live with day in and day out for years and even decades, and you don't think anything of it because you're just so used to it, right? 
you, you start to wear into these patterns. What changed my friend was a conversation he had with someone at his church who pointed this out, and he recognized something he hadn't seen before. He came home to tell his wife uh, all that he was sorry for, and little did he know that his wife had been praying for him for over a year, and his wife had actually got to the point where she was ready to leave him. It, It took something so consequential to get through to him to recognize the impact of his comfort and familiarity with those closest to him. When he was sharing that story and I got to thinking about my life, I got to thinking about another person, and that is the disciple John. You see, John is who we're going to be reading from today. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. John begins his gospel, that is the account of Jesus, this way. He says, In the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Now you may be wondering where that story about my friend and even my own life got me to John in reading of this passage. You see, John is a man who knows what it means to have a changed life. You see, John was a disciple of Jesus. He was one of the 12 disciples that followed Jesus in his life and ministry. And more than that, he was one of the three, Peter, James, and John, who had sort of a, you might call it an inner circle relationship with Jesus. When Jesus would go off alone and separate him, sometimes he would take these three with him. You know something about the disciples? Every single one of them were persecuted for their faith and martyred for their faith. Now, to be a martyr means that you live, under the, 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 you live under the hardship of being tortured and put to death for that which you believe. 
All of the disciples experienced that. All but one. You see, 11 of the disciples, they carried the the burden of suffering and dying for their faith, but John carried the unique burden and even privilege of suffering and living for his faith. It it wasn't without trying. You see, the Roman emperor Domitian, he, he actually tried to martyr John. He put him in the Colosseum, and his was one of the more gruesome um, devices, you might say, of martyrdom. You know, we've seen images in movies, and, and the, the, the images of being torn apart by lions is horrendous enough. What Domitian had for John was to boil him alive in oil. Now, I don't know about you, but facing that kind of a fate would make me, uh, well, let me just say, it would make me pause for reflection, to say the least. This is not uh, an easy way to go. But John actually survived. In fact, there are some, maybe they ascribe this to the legend, you might say, of church history. We don't know if it's true. But some say he, he was unscathed from this. God is certainly able to do that. Um, either way, he went through some unpleasant experiences. When Domitian said, I can't kill this guy, let me at least silence him and get rid of him, he he exiled him to an island of Patmos where we know or believe at least that John wrote the book of Revelation. We think, too, he wrote this gospel account, the gospel of John, later in his life. When Domitian died, his exile was over. He was able to come back, and he ministered at the end of his days in Turkey, what's modern-day Ephesus. This is John, right? He is someone who you might say is, is, is a, a stud among studs. He, he didn't recant his faith. He, he suffered. He, he lived to a ripe old age for it. And he endured many tragedies, many hardships along the way. But there's something else you need to know about John. You see, he was brother to James and the son of Zebedee. And Jesus had a, a particular nickname for these guys. He called them the sons of thunder. Now that just sounds like an awesome name. Like, like all the guys, all the dudes are saying, yes, that's what I want to be. If I were to get a tattoo, it would be son of thunder, right? It's just, it's a man among men, someone who just, you, you want to be like, right? Jesus called them that because James and John were the ones who, whenever Jesus would preach and people wouldn't accept him, they'd be the first ones to say, Jesus, do you want us to call on God to rain down fire on these people? Like, do they not know who you are? Do they not know who they're messing with? These guys were, were, were aggressive, right? They were, you might say, prone to violence. You know that later in his life, what church history records, that people would ask John, John, if you had to sum up your theology, your worldview, what you, what you think of life and how to live it, what would you sum it up as? John would answer it this way. Children love one another. When asked why, he would say, if you just do that, you'll take care of everything else. How does a son of thunder become a son of love? How does, how does any life actually change, for that matter? This is what John is going to get to throughout the whole gospel. And it begins on John 1, verses 1 through 18. Uh, many call this the prologue to the whole gospel, the introduction. The, if this were a symphony, it would be the introductory notes that signal you to what's going to come throughout the rest of the gospel. And what we see here is something that John has to say about how we interpret life and how we are changed by the author of that life. First, he tells us about the reality of the word in verses 1, 1 through 5. He says, in the beginning. Now, 
if you are used to coming to church, if you're used to reading the Bible or listening to sermons, you may have heard these three words before. If you grew up as an Israelite, as a Hebrew, you certainly would know these words. They are the same three words that show up in the very beginning of the Bible in the book of Genesis chapter 1. Where Genesis 1 says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. What John is doing here is he's signaling to say, I want to teach you something about the word. And you need to associate the word with that which was from the beginning. If you were to hear this, you would think a couple of different things. You would think the word is something that exists outside of created existence. It's pre-existent. It comes before everything else that we know. What the Hebrews would have said we associate with God, John is going to say we now associate with the word. And this word is loaded. It's the Greek word logos. Maybe you've heard this before, but the logos is a word that has... A flexible range of meanings, you could say. In fact, it's a word that was used by mathematicians, poets, and philosophers of Jesus' day and Paul's day and John's day. They would use the word logos to refer to kind of the fundamental unit of something. It was the essence. It was the words a poet would use to craft its poem. It would be the formulas a mathematician would use to solve and complex and engineer all the, the marvelous feats of antiquity. It was the fundamental thing that organized all of life. It it wasn't just strictly a biblical word. In other words, it had a range of meanings. And yet, if you were not just a Greek philosopher or mathematician or poet, if you were a, a Hebrew or an Israelite like John was, you would also recognize something else about what John is doing here. In the beginning was the word. And just like Genesis 1 harkens back to the time before everything existed and God created, now we realize, wait a minute, God created everything by the word of his power. God spoke into existence everything that is. And John here is saying, I want you to have all this in your mind as I'm about to tell you the rest of everything that I'm going to say. In the beginning was the word, the logos, the orienting and organizing principle of all things. It is that which God speaks and all things come into existence. But he takes it a step further and says, and the word was with God, and the word was God. You see, this is not just a a principle of life. To a Greek, you would say the word is uh, stoicism. Right? It's a philosophy. It's an orienting principle of life. It, it says, you know, just suffer and get on with it. Do the best that you can. Improve yourself. An Epicurean might say, you know what? Embrace happiness and just do what you want. That's the organizing principle of life. A Hebrew would say, I live and die by the words that come from God. Encapsulated in the law, in the 600 plus commands that I have to live by. And what John is here saying is, wait a minute. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This isn't just an abstraction or a principle. God is the Word. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Everything we have, everything we use to organize our life, has its beginning in God. This is what John is wanting to get across. 
You can't just think in abstractions. You have to think in relationship. Everything we have, everything we are, everything we do, everything we organize our life by has some kind of a connection to the God of the universe and all of creation. He goes on to say, In him, that is the word, was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is what first kind of clued me in to what I needed to hear for my own life and what my friend realized for his, is that darkness, darkness really isn't a thing when you think about it. It's just the absence of light. You, you can't create darkness. You, you can't make darkness. If you were in a dark cave, you're, it's not dark because it's dark. It's dark because there's no light. You get a flashlight, you light a match, and all of a sudden you start to see your surroundings with more clarity than you ever saw before. It wasn't that anything changed about the cave. The only thing that changed was the presence of light. You see, we we tend to think of darkness as something we have to battle, something we have to overcome, something that we have to best, something that we have to overpower. What John is saying here is, No, let the light, that's the life of men, take care of that. You just got to shine it in that area of your life. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Other translations say the darkness has not understood it. I think both meanings are present here. I don't think it's one or the other. Because to understand something means you have mastery over it. Just like if you were to overcome something, you would have mastery over it. What John is saying here is the word has mastery even over the darkness that you see in this world and in your life. This is John's way of saying there are actually two ways to miss the reality of the word in your life. One is willfulness and the other is ignorance. Do you understand that the word which is the light and life of men has finally come into this world, has presented itself, has made itself known. Are you willfully set yourself up against that? Because you cannot let the light shine in the darkness, and you'll still be in dark. You've got to let the light shine in that darkness if you want to see it overcome it. This is the reality of the word. John is saying, it is God who has created all things, who has given us light and life, and who will not let darkness overcome it. He will not let your willfulness or ignorance stand in its way. He goes on to talk about the history now of this word. And he he begins with verse 6 where he says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Now, this is not a clever way of John saying, I want to introduce myself to you in the third person. Right? There was a man, his name was John, just so happens to be me, let me tell you about him. That's not what John's doing here. John is actually referring to another John, John the Baptist, the, the cousin of Jesus. John the Baptist was a prophet, in many ways he was the last of the prophets. He was the guy who comes in after 400 years of silence of God's people not hearing from God through the prophets and from the word to say, I am going to make way in the desert for the one we have been waiting on to come. And the Israelites would flock out to see this guy, John the Baptist, to hear his message, to be baptized by him even. 
They would go out into the wilderness where he would just stay. And they'd be baptized for the forgiveness of their sins because he was preaching like a prophet would. This is what God has said. This is how we are living now. We have to repent of our sins and be right with God because we are preparing the way for his Messiah, the expectant one, to come. In this way, John the Baptist was one who came as a witness to the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness to testify about the light. You know, he mentions another prophet, but we don't think about it until later in this verse, in verse 17, where he talks about the law was given through Moses. Moses was generally considered the first and greatest prophet. He was the one who actually delivered the law to God's people. He was the the mouthpiece, the spokesperson that God would meet with, and he would then take all that God had said and deliver it to God's people, for this is now how we are to live. What John is, is doing here is he's saying, what all the prophets have spoken about from the first to the last has finally come in this word. This word that is coming into the world. The law that came through Moses, a set of principles to live by, but God's people have failed. And every other prophet since then, all they did was remind God's people of what God had said and how they were to respond to God's word. Time and time again, prophet after prophet, all those books of the Bible that you want to get through, but you just have a hard time when you try to read your Bible in a year because there's so many of them. He's saying every single one of them had the same message. This is who God is. This is who you are in relationship to him. Now change your ways. I had a seminary professor who said, you know, the the role of the prophet was not foretelling or future telling. It was forth telling. In other words, it was meant to just be a great big reminder to God's people of who they were and who they were supposed to be in light of all that God has done for them. John is here saying now all those prophets have been leading up to this. The word that was in the beginning, that was with God and that was God, that is the light that shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it, is now what every single one of these prophets, from Moses to John the Baptist, has been preparing the way for. And he says, this is the true light which gives light to everyone that was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. They did not have a a affirming relationship with him. They couldn't recognize him. They were ignorant of him. Later it says he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Meaning, maybe they weren't ignorant. They were just willful and resistant. They saw Jesus and they said, you don't match up to our expectations. We wanted a conqueror to kick Rome out. Not someone who says to Love your enemies and pray for them and to forgive them and to give them your extra cloak and to go the extra mile and to lay your life down for others. That's not the Messiah we were rooting for. We're the, we're the sons of thunder. We want violence and retribution. We want our way. This is how the history of the word comes into the world. To a people who either ignore him or willfully resist him. And yet, he will not let darkness overcome it. You see, this word is a a person 
You notice he said this word isn't an abstraction. It's a he, him throughout this whole passage. The light coming into the world is not a principle. It's not a system. It's not a law. It's a person. And you can only receive and accept a person. Let me ask you this way. People who have been married more than a week. Have you ever tried to change your spouse? How does that go for you? If you've figured out that trick, please see me afterwards. I I would like to learn. Because after 20 years, I'm done trying to change my spouse. In fact, I'm done trying to change anybody. You, You don't really change another person. You can accept them. You can receive them. But you can't change them. This is what we want to do when the word comes into our world is we think we have some bargaining power with it. We think we have some some standing, some power, some ability to manipulate or control the outcomes of it. And what John is here saying is you may think you can do that with another human being, but I can guarantee you, you can't do that with this word. This word is a person, but it's more than just a person you've ever encountered. This person is the person before all people. He's the one who created everything in the first place. You can disagree with, and you can change an organizing principle. You can disobey rules. You can break laws that you live by and change them to fit your pattern, but you can't change another person. John is setting up the conflict that happens in every human heart. That is this. Who is going to be in control? Is it going to be me? Or is it going to be something or someone outside of me? John takes it one step further in the rest of the passage, saying that the true light, which gives light to everyone, is not just any person, it's a particular person. Starting in verse 14, John says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This word is a particular person. This word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have lived with him, John says. We have been with him. We have eaten with him. We know his, his facial features. We know the length of his beard. We, we know what it's like to walk with him, in other words. This word became flesh. That which was before all things, an active agent in creation, becomes part of his creation in a very real and tangible way. Ultimate reality is not just an abstraction, in other words. It's, it now has skin in the game, John is saying. This word he uses to say dwelt among us is also a loaded word. It, it literally means to, to pitch a tent, to set up camp, to build a home. It's what the Israelites would have referred to hearkening back to the time where they were wandering through the desert and they would set up the tabernacle where Moses would go to meet with God. He would say that in Exodus 33 and 34, we read about this, that this is the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. Now, God had given the law before to God's people. We know this story in Exodus 19 and 20. They had just come out of the Red Sea. God had just vanquished their enemies in Egypt. They're now at the base of Mount Sinai. And God gives two tablets to Moses of the law. Do you remember what God's people did when Moses was meeting with God? They had to wait a few days. And in the space of time, after they had seen all that God had done for them, they decided to say, Hey, we kind of missed the deities we worshipped in Egypt. 
we can at least see them. We can't see this God that Moses is talking to. Hey, Aaron, can you make for us gods like we had in Egypt? And Aaron thought, well, that sounds like a good idea. Sure, let me do that. So he took all the gold he could, melted it down, and created a golden calf that God's people would bow down and worship. Just days after they had experienced the greatest redemption God's people had ever experienced up to that time. And Moses comes down. He sees what the people are doing. In fact, God had kind of signaled to him. He said, hey, Moses, you got to get back down there because the people are impatient. And you won't believe what they're doing. And Moses comes down. And you remember what he does? He, he takes the stone tablets and he breaks them. He's like, how could you? After everything that's gone on and what I was hearing from God, how could you do this? Do you not know who we are dealing with here? And and God uh, gave them a punishment that fit the crime, rather gruesome, melt it down and eat it. It was awful. But God's people never forgot that lesson. And God gives them another chance. You see, God tells his people, I'm going to still send you out into the promised land. And Moses says, God, this is Exodus 33 and 34. Moses says, God, don't do that if you're not going to go with us. Don't send me back there to lead these, this uh, willful, stubborn, stiff-necked people. They made a golden calf whose neck you can't move. It's symbolic, it's symbolic of their heart. They are a wicked and stiff-necked people, even though they're yours. So if you're not going to go with us, don't send us out. God said, I am going to go with you, Moses. I am going to lead my people into the promised land. Moses goes one step further. He asks for something that no one had asked of God before. Not even Moses up to this point. He asked God, he said, God, if I'm going to go back down there, will you at least show me your glory? Will you let me see something of you no man has ever seen before? Will you let me see you for who you actually are, not just your works, not just your power, but you. And do you remember God's answer to Moses? Those of you who have maybe grown up in the church and have heard the story of the golden calf and the giving of the Ten Commandments. God says, Moses, I will let you see a sliver of my glory, but I can't let you see my full glory. I can't let you see my face because it would literally melt your face off. But I will let you see a part of me. In fact, what I'm going to do is I'm going to tuck you into this crevice of a rock. And I will let my glory pass before you. And you can kind of see the backside of me. But if you were to see my full glory, you wouldn't be able to stand it. You know, that was enough for Moses to see that when he came down from that mountain and he had the commandments with him and he went back to God's people that the people were freaked out by Moses. His face shone so brightly. I mean, this was worse than like a bad suntan. This was something that just radiated a change in Moses, and they were just so blinded by it, they couldn't even look at him. So Moses started to have to veil his face every time he came back from meeting with the Lord. He was so changed by seeing the backside of God's glory that he couldn't stand it, let alone the rest of God's people. Every time it says that Moses would enter in the tent to meet with the Lord, the glory would descend, the smoke would appear, and God's people would wait at the the entrance of their own tent to hear what Moses would come back and say about his time with God. 
when John here is saying, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is not just God coming to Moses to mediate a relationship, to be a go in between. What John is saying is now that same God, that same glory that came down, dwelt among us. It says, we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. We're not seeing a veil. We're not seeing a smoke-filled room that helped shield some of the glory from even Moses. We're seeing the fullness of God and his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. This is what John bore witness about him and cried out. This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. John the Baptist knew that he wasn't just waiting for a Messiah, a militaristic leader. He was saying, no, I'm paving the way for the one who's before all things comes into our existence and into our world. And John ends with this, verse 16. He says, for from his fullness now, from having seen this glorious God face to face, the word that was with God and was God in the beginning that created all things, that is the organizing everything, of all of creation, this person who has entered into our history, who has taken on our flesh, for from him, from his fullness, we have all received now grace upon grace. I would think the way that I live my life and the way we all live our lives, the way the Israelites live their life, what we could expect to receive from the God of the universe for the way we live out our relationship with him probably I wouldn't use grace upon grace to describe it at first. Correction, judgment, recalibration, all those things come to my mind. And yet what John here is saying is, no, what we've received from him is grace upon grace. In other words, this is like ocean wave upon ocean wave of grace. It just seems to never stop coming. It is always cascading over us. He says, listen, for the law was given through Moses and the law is great. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Everything that the law and the prophets pointed forward to has now come in this person. And for the first time, John reveals the name of this word. Jesus Christ. So what do you see when you see Jesus? John is here saying effectively. Some saw Jesus as a great teacher. Some saw him as a revolutionary. Some saw him as a fulfillment, maybe, of their hopes and their dreams. Others saw him as someone who was interrupting their plans, someone who was getting in the way of their agenda, someone who needed to be removed. John is saying here, what do you see when you see Jesus Christ? Because verse 18, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he, as Jesus, has made him God, the only God known. What you see when you see Jesus is not just someone you can manipulate, someone you can get rid of, not just someone you can disagree with. 
When you see Jesus, you are literally seeing the God of the universe who created all things and in whom all things hold together. You're encountering the one who makes life work as you know it. You're encountering the one who shines into the darkness and whose light will not let darkness overcome it. When you see Jesus, you see nothing other than light and life as we were meant to have it and live it. And when you see Jesus, when you see him, you have to recognize that you have a choice. You can willfully resist him. You can choose to ignore him. Or you can do what John says. In verse 12, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Life change only happens when we see Jesus for who he is, who he really is. Not who we want him to be, not who we'd like him to be, but for the fact that he is the one who's created us and who sustains us, who is everything to us and who gives us grace upon grace, full of truth and light, even in the darkness of our own hearts. You can seek to master your life and be in control of everything. You can resist anyone else telling you what to do or how to live. But the fundamental reality of life is a person, a particular person, and you're not just breaking a law when you and I sin. You're not just failing to live up to a set of principles. We are literally breaking the heart of God who created us in all things when we willfully resist or choose to ignore who he has sent for us. We have a choice, and that choice will either lead us to life and light or to remain in darkness. When John says the word became flesh, he tells us something of particular interest to us, even now as we transition and move to the time of the table. Have you ever wondered why Jesus had to become a human being and why we make such a big deal of his flesh? I mean, he could have sent a clarifier. He could have sent a refresher. He could have sent a crash course on what the law is to tell us how we are to live, but instead he sent a person. Not just any person, but he sent his son. You see, a law you can break. And Jesus says, or God says, I'm going to send my son who's not just going to live up to the law, but his body is going to be broken for those who have broken my law. His blood is going to be spilled to actually show my people that I don't just want them to live a certain way. I want them to receive me. This is what that table symbolizes. Heavenly Father, as we come to your table and as we hear your word, would you change our hearts? Would you change our minds? Would you change our lives? to reflect the fact that we have seen you for who you are and all that you have done for us. Let us remain grateful and humble for all that you have done for us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.